Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of season three of Heels in the Courtroom. Today, I am joined by Liz Lenovey, Mary Simon, and Megan Crow. And our topic is when and how to hire experts at the beginning of a case. So it occurred to me that there are different stages in case investigation to decide when to hire an expert. And oftentimes I take that for granted because I do a lot of medical malpractice, as you know, and we have a number of experts that we consult with that can answer questions for us pretty quickly. So oftentimes I get a case in, gather the medical records and say, send this to Dr. So-and-so. And the records go out, conversation occurs, and we decide whether to go forward with the case or not. Today though, I wanna talk about not only that scenario, which is really easy and streamlined, but talk about when cases come in that maybe don't fit exactly into a typical area of medicine or a typical area of science that we have go-to folks to consult with and decide when is it appropriate to send records to an expert, how to find that expert, and then how to communicate and which records to send to that expert. For example, I've got a case that involves gastroenterology and whether a certain gastroenterology condition is related to some negligence that has occurred. And believe it or not, gastroenterology is not a subject area that I have a go-to expert on. So the question becomes, where do I find an expert in that field? And we have a number of different resources for that. We have an actual vendor or company that we consult with from time to time for very specific experts. We have listservs that we are members of that you can ask your colleagues if there's anyone they would recommend. We have databases that we search through. There are a lot of different ways to find an expert. The next question becomes, how do we contact this person and what records to send? So Liz, can you help explain in that particular case how you went about it and the best, most efficient way to get that done? This particular case was a real bear of a case trying to nail down an expert. And I had initially tried to avoid going through an expert vendor service because I didn't want to incur that charge. So I tried to do the search on my own and I started doing literature research on this particular condition. And through my literature research, I had found a couple of names that I thought these would be good people to reach out to. And I proceeded to just sort of cold call them and say, hey, I'm an attorney in St. Louis. I saw that you have published on this particular topic. I think I have a case that might fit within your area of research. Do you want to give me a call and see if you have any interest in testifying on this issue? And a couple people very quickly let me know that they are terrified of litigation and they have no interest in talking to a lawyer ever. 
And I say, okay, thank you for giving me a call back. One particular expert did take the time to talk to me and he said, you know, I've, I've done this type of testifying before. I'll tell you the case that you're describing is not really something within my expertise. You have to go into an even further subspecialty. And I said, okay, well, I've done all this work so far. I've contacted all of these people. I keep coming up empty. And I finally did turn to that expert vendor service and filled in as much information as I could. And through that process, I sent it out to these folks whose entire job it is, is to just find qualified people to testify in litigation. And through their search, they did find me someone. And so this case, I had gone through all of my tricks to try to find someone. I did the listservs and I checked through the databases and I read the literature and I cold called and I just tried as many ways as I could to find someone. And my last resort was this expert vendor service who was able to put me in contact with someone who could take a look at the case. So let me ask, is using a vendor service always a last resort or when do you bite the bullet and do it right off the bat for convenience or surety's sake? The analysis, Megan, that has to be done involves looking at the case to see if the litigation that you're going to be involved in and the value of the case really warrants the specialized research that has to be done through various expert vendors because it can be pretty costly. But it is much better than just giving up on the case. And we have had tremendous success. If you find the right company, they will find the expert that best fits the subject matter. And usually that expert has some litigation experience as well, which is sort of the next step that you have to take when you're onboarding experts. You have to know that they're qualified, but you also have to believe that they're going to hold up under cross-examination. I trust expert vendors to find me a qualified expert. I don't necessarily trust that company to tell me this is an excellent testifier. And that brings us to the next category when you're onboarding experts. We're always trying to walk this line between experts that are tried and true, so to speak, that we've known before or have done a lot of litigation in their career, and brand new experts who can't be tagged with the idea that that's all they do is litigation. They make a whole lot of money on it and they'll say anything you want to say as long as they're hired. And we're constantly trying to walk that line, finding people who are very well qualified, who have done litigation, who have given depositions, maybe even testified in a trial, but not so much that it accounts for more than five or 10% of their professional time. And sometimes those folks are unicorns, but we look for them and even if it's a brand new expert, I can judge after talking to that person and spending time with that person, whether I can properly prepare them and whether they will stand up under cross-examination. I have faith that I can teach this person how to be a good testifier, as long as I believe that they are very well qualified and just strongly hold their opinions that they're giving me. We're sort of at the mercy of experts in a lot of the litigation, including the product liability, medical malpractice, pretty much most of the cases that we work on require experts. So Mary, in your practice, what steps do you take to make sure you've got an expert who 
can hold up under cross-examination. It's important to point out that in medical malpractice cases in Missouri, and I think we've touched on this before in the podcast, you have to have a medical expert to get your case on file. That means an expert, actually a medical expert in the same profession as the potential defendant doctor, whoever you're suing, you have to have someone in that same medical practice area to look at your case and say, I agree this is a meritorious case and I'm going to sign an affidavit to that extent before you can even get your case on file. So when we're talking about medical malpractice cases, we're talking about cases where we know if we take that case, we have to have one, probably more than one expert in that case. If you're working up a med mal case, you know you need an expert. You try to just find an expert if you can prior to reaching out to someone who maybe we've used in the past or we've used more than once in the past because you just know that every single time you use them, it's kind of another tally against your doctor and their deposition. First question they're going to be asked is, has Simon Law Firm retained you before? Oh, yes. How many times? Which lawyers? What cases? When were they? It just opens up a big line of questioning. So in order to avoid that, I do the same thing that Liz does, which is I've done independent literature searches. I think I did the same thing, Liz. I had a specific condition. I found a doctor and I was expecting what you had happen, which was, I don't do this. A lawyer's calling me. I'm scared. I'm going to hang up the phone very quickly and hope I never have to hear from her again. But I found one doctor who helped me out in a case a couple of years ago, and he ended up being great for the case. But I think that that's rare. And I think it's rare on both sides. I don't think it's a bad thing for all of us plaintiff's lawyers sitting on this call talking about how we find experts. I'm assuming the it's very similar on the other side of the case. And one of the reasons we know this is because we see the same defense experts' names time and time again. So I try my best to find somebody who has testified less than, oh, a couple hundred times <laughs> and someone who actually is knowledgeable in their area of practice and also someone who has publications or has studied the specific type of medicine that you're having them testify on. Because in our caliber of cases, very rarely are we going to hire an expert who has been practicing for two years in their field of medicine. Right. It's the exact same thing as if someone's looking for a lawyer, they're looking for somebody who's handled the type of case that they have multiple times over and over again, and they know what they're doing. It's just experience-based, so it makes sense that that would happen. So I really like to get a copy of my potential expert CV ahead of time if I can. It's helpful to network with other plaintiff's attorneys to get that information. So I will do my best to do my own independent research and hopefully get a CV of any potential expert I'm trying to use on a case and look at their CV and see if there's anything on it that is directly on point as far as research goes or publications go that has to do directly with the issues I'm asking them to talk about in our case. And oftentimes, the first call you'll have with an expert, and there are absolutely exceptions to this, but oftentimes that first 20-minute, 30-minute conversation, they're not going to send you a huge bill for that first call. Again, caveat, there's exceptions. <laughs> All of us have been in that position before where we get hit with an invoice that we didn't know was coming, which just re-reminds me to bring that up initially with a potential expert is costs. But generally, 
I do the same thing Liz does. Try to find someone who has the credentials you need in the case and who's willing to talk to you briefly right out the gate and who's willing to send you a CV so you can take a look at it. I think that those things are very helpful to get the ball rolling, to get your case reviewed. One additional point on researching your expert is oftentimes in databases, whether it's Westlaw or LexisNexis, whatever you may use, you can actually look up expert sort of report generator. So it will show you how often do they testify? What other jurisdictions have they testified in? What's their breakdown of testifying on behalf of plaintiffs versus defendants? Do you have someone who is a 100% plaintiff or a 100% defense person? Additionally, you can look up whether or not their testimony has ever been stricken by a court before. So once you have found someone who you think is a good fit, there is an additional step you want to take just to make sure that they are legit expert and that whatever experience they may have in previous testimony working on prior cases um, is not going to be something that harms your case. Do you guys think it's a red flag if someone has a 100% track record of either testifying for the plaintiff or the defendant? Yes. (laughs) It is not ideal. And I love it when I ask an expert that question in a deposition and the answer is I've only ever testified in court or in deposition for defendants. But occasionally you have an expert who is so compelling, testifies so well, is so likable that you can get past it, especially if you know it's likely the defendants also have an expert with 85 to 100% testifying rate on behalf of defendants, it kind of becomes a wash, but it certainly is not my first choice. And I have to have plenty of things in the pro column in order to get past that in the con column. We've been talking about how to find an expert, but as someone who has been practicing only a year and a half, I think that the first question that comes to my mind when we talk about this topic of experts is when you even need one. I know you guys all do a lot of medical malpractice, so I think experts are a given in those cases. A lot of my practice has been trucking accidents, and in these personal injury cases, sometimes we'll have multiple different cases with very similar facts. And in some of the cases, there will be an expert testifying to causation of the injury to the accident, and sometimes there won't be. And so I guess my question is, what considerations go into that decision? Is it the dollar amount at stake? Is it how specialized the injury is? I guess what other kind of considerations are the most important? It's all of the above, and it's so case-specific. It depends on the nature of the crash. It depends on the liability. If you have somebody who's just drunk and blows through an intersection and slams into another vehicle, it probably doesn't warrant having an expert to come in to talk about how that is wrong or against you know, law <laughs> or it's negligent. On the other hand, if you have a trucking case that it has federal regulations that apply to that crash and that there are federal laws and there are industry standards and there are state standards that apply to how that truck driver needed to be driving, the proper way to make a turn. If a truck made a wrong turn or went too wide or went over into another lane too much, then you might need to have an accident reconstructionist or an expert on those standards and the industry standards to talk about the specific ways in which that driver was negligent. 
in my experience, it's case specific, it's fact specific, and it depends on what you need in order to win your case. If you need specific acts of negligence to be described in terms of standards, federal standards or state standards, then you need somebody to come in to talk about those. The case has to be able to support spending the money. I don't think it's ever a bad idea to have some expert, even in a non-medical case or a non-product liability case, available, number one, for consulting in case you do need to learn more about the regulations, about the statutes that apply, but also to have that person available if you need them, if you decide you have to have someone named for the case. So I think it's very much a case by case, as Mary said, but I guess I would be nervous not to have someone available to testify and or at least consult on the case. Yeah, that makes sense. Sometimes the facts are enough. Sometimes you need specific expert testimony to it. One additional point I will make just because I have seen this come up in a case that Amy and I worked on is if you can use a witness in the case as your expert. For example, if it is an issue where you think the negligence was a result of a regulatory failure or failure to follow a statute, something like that, if you can find someone, maybe it's the defendant themselves, if they can admit that they failed to follow the regulation, follow the statute, follow their own policies and procedures, or alternatively, if you have someone who's maybe from a state agency that can come in and explain that this is what we have expectations for. And the reason we have these expectations is because of safety standards. You might be able to use that person as your expert and you, one, avoid the additional cost of having to have a retained expert. But two, just from a jury standpoint, that is a probably a more credible witness because they're not a, a paid or a hired gun in the case. They're just a witness. They saw it in real time. And so in certain cases, if you have someone that you can use that is already involved just because of what their job is or what their relationship to the case is, you might be able to go to that person and sort of make them your expert. Once you decide that you need an expert and you've done your research, you've consulted your resources and you've picked someone, I want to move on to the best way to approach that person, particularly if they're a newer expert, at least new to your firm or new to us. So Liz, do you think it's better to reach out via email or a phone call or how do you initiate that first contact? This is my personal preference. You have to figure out whatever you are most comfortable with, but I like to reach out via email and I keep my email incredibly short. It's two sentences. Why do you do that? Because in Missouri, <laughs> as I think in probably most jurisdictions, any communication with an expert is discoverable. So you don't want to write something in an email or in a letter that an opposing counsel might be able to read aloud in a deposition and make you cringe. Of, oh, why did I say that? So my emails literally start, dear Dr. So-and-so. My name is Liz Lenevy. I am an attorney in St. Louis. I have a case that uh, I wanted to see if you would have any interest in reviewing. Please call me back. Thanks. Send. And that is it. Who I am, why I'm reaching out to them, will you call me back? I don't go into any more detail than that. 
occasionally, if it's an expert I've previously worked with, I may mention that, you know, this is how we know each other and may, might get a, a better reaction, but oftentimes I will avoid that. If it's an expert I don't know, I don't have a prior relationship with, I don't like calling out of the blue so much just because that can sort of take people back. I think the way that professionally people communicate nowadays, email is sort of the standard and it's considered more polite to email someone first if you're going to be asking them for something. But like I said, I keep my email short and if I call them, oftentimes you'll have to get through a secretary or something and you just explain, again, that's sort of the same three points. I'm a lawyer. I want to know if they can review this case for me and will they call me back? So that is how I initiate communications with experts, but I'm curious what everyone else's practice is. Well, listeners can't see this, but I was just laughing as Liz was talking because I recently worked on a case where an expert was deposed and I got all the correspondence between the other lawyer's office, my opposing counsel's office and that expert. And the first contact was a three and a half page email from the law firm's office to this expert. And, you know, I read it and I flagged it and saved it and went, man, this is going to be their opening statement. (laughs) This is their closing argument. It told me so much about regardless of what it even talked about between them and the expert. I just got a complete inside look as to what the attorney thinks the case is about and and what they think my client has damages of and, and doesn't at all and what aspect, you know, of my client's damages are completely resolved that he has no longer has any issue with and how often that this firm has worked with this expert before. And from that, I will say thank you so much to honest lawyers who actually turn over all correspondence. Thank you so much because it's ethical. You have to do that. But I bet that happens so often and we just never see those contacts. I know at our office, we're incredibly careful to Liz's point of anything we put in because we absolutely are going to turn over all correspondence to the other side. So that's kind of the the don't of the do's and don'ts of communicating with an expert. And it also just made up for a beautiful line of questioning during the deposition. Liz, I always call experts. It's mostly because I'm never guaranteed of what I'm going to get in the return email. And if it's someone who I want to work with or I want to talk to, I've had it happen before where they've sent just one extra sentence that they didn't need to send in that initial contact that 99% of the time isn't bad, but that 1% where it was to me, I didn't use the expert anymore. But I usually pick up the phone and call, and I think the last time I sent an initial email to an expert, I couldn't find a phone number for him anywhere, and I sent him an email saying, do you have time for a phone call? And that's all I said, which is the most ambiguous type of email, but I just, I had never worked with him before, and I didn't want him to be that 1% that sends back too much of an email about plaintiffs or defendants or whatever. I prefer the email in the manner that Liz described, because it documents first contact. And, you know, I'll know I'm such a chronological thinker, and it's not just about the case, it's also about the litigation. When things happened, when experts were hired, those things can all be very important. So I like an initial contact email that is very benign, as Liz described, 
and then a phone call thereafter. And the reason I like the email is because it documents how benign the contact was. So Mary, I can see your point on the phone call, just the straight up phone call, but sometimes that doesn't get documented or written down by the expert. And then the question is, when were you first contacted? The answer is, well, I don't really remember. It was sometime in December or maybe it was January. I don't know. Not that that's a bad answer, but you could see where the uncertainty of that could make that expert feel or sound a little bit, a little loosey-goosey about things. And if he's loosey-goosey about his dates of when he was contacted, maybe he's loosey-goosey about his opinions or how he reached his opinions. So I like the documentation of the very benign, hi, my name is Amy Gunn. I am contacting you about potentially reviewing some records. If you believe that you are qualified to do this, please let me know or something along those lines. And then certainly after that, phone calls are the better way to go. Sometimes I instruct paralegals or secretaries to reach out and probably that's because I can be lazy, <laughs> but you've got to be real careful with that. And you have to know that your paralegal and or secretary or whoever is reaching out knows the rules on what to say and how to say it, because it is kind of shocking, Mary, the story that you tell if that email came from an attorney, because typically attorneys are gonna go the, the short and sweet route. But I have seen paralegals or secretaries say a little too much in the email. One situation that I wanna throw out that can be fantastic if you can pull it off is a blind review. So what I mean by that is if it's a brand new expert that you haven't used before, do you have to say, my name is Amy Gunn, I represent the patient, I represent the plaintiff? Or can you say, my name is Amy Gunn, I have some records I believe are within your specialty and, and you would be qualified to review, are you interested in reviewing them? And then not really give any more information about who you represent. Because I've done that in radiology cases before, just literally sent a disc with films on it and asked for an interpretation. That works well if you suspect that there's been something missed on an image, something that was interpreted wrongly or not interpreted at all. That works really well because I've had experts, the defense just assumes that this person was knowledgeable of who I represent and who the review was on behalf of. And if that expert can say, you know what, before this letter came, I had no idea who Amy Gunn was and I didn't know who she represented because the hospital could easily have sent those films because they're property of the hospital. That is really effective and compelling testimony. Cases like that don't come along all that often. But think about when you're making contact with an expert for the first time, think about not telling them who you represent. You're not being dishonest. You're really, truly fulfilling this idea that you want an independent, objective review of the records. And I love it when an expert at his or her deposition can say, in answer to the question, how many times have you worked for Amy Gunn? And the answer is, well, this is the first time. In fact, I didn't even know who she represented. Like that could be really powerful. Have you ever had that situation before, Mary or Liz? I have had one defense expert before say that they did, you know, a blind review of 
a pathology report, which I get. And then I think it kind of swings both ways sometimes because they're only sent one part of the chart, but then they miss the part of the chart where really bad things happened to say the least. And that's the part of the chart that I'm focusing on, on my case, as far as what caused damages. I don't think it's necessarily bad that they looked with an objective eye, but it kind of goes into make sure you're sending them whatever information they need from the get-go. So in their deposition down the line, they say, oh, well, I reviewed that, but then no, I didn't have any knowledge of anything else that was going on with the patient or in the patient's chart until yesterday in their deposition. So I like that concept as long as that's the right type of expert. So like a radiology expert looking at a film for our purposes, for something that's missed, that works out really well. It Maybe it doesn't work out so well on the other side if it's ignoring a significant part of the patient's chart that we think is significant for the case. But for our purposes, I, I think that's really interesting. I might try it. It kind of eliminates a possibility of a confirmation bias. Exactly, which is rampant in litigation like this. And anybody on the jury who is going to make that assumption, if you were hired by this person, then you were inclined to believe this person or believe this person's story. So it is one of the few ways that you can combat, as you say, the confirmation bias. We can approach an expert before litigation. By the time the defendant is involved, of course, the case has been filed and they've been hired. And I have yet to have a defense firm not write in the letter or in the email, I represent, proudly represent this hospital or this doctor because it's part of the whole theme of the case is, hey, doctor expert, this doctor's been sued. And wouldn't you like to read these awful allegations against this fellow doctor? And it's not quite that explicit, but why do you think in almost every case the defendant sends the petition? Do we ever send the petition to our experts? I mean, I don't. Maybe it's nice that they know what the allegations are, but that's just feeding, I think, this confirmation bias. But the other issue, Mary, that you bring up that is sort of next on my list is what records do you send? You point out that if you cherry pick records or comb through those records, it can easily be interpreted as guiding that expert to certain facts and away from other facts. And I think that's dangerous. So Liz, what do you usually like to send to an expert for an initial review? Keeping in mind that we primarily do medical malpractice and that we live and die by the medical records. Our cases are made by the medical records. There are cases where you're going to have thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of records, 20, 30,000 pages possibly. If you send that to someone who is billing you at a rate of dollars per hour, that's going to add up quickly. And so sometimes it is economically necessary to to cull through the records and and select what you want to send. And so what I do when I go through the records myself, and I think I can speak for everyone in our firm, we look at every page, you know, of those 20,000 pages, we look at them to make sure we know what's there. And I try to select what I think is actually relevant for the doctor's opinions. And oftentimes what you'll see in medical records is there's a lot of charting that isn't necessary 
to figure out when the negligence occurred or what is the damage that resulted. I'm probably going to cut out the flow sheets unless there's something specific in there. I don't think the doctor needs a minute-by-minute tracking. If it is a surgery case, what you can probably send is the operative report. The minute-by-minute tracking from the surgery itself, that's probably important. But if they have a two-month hospital stay afterwards, you don't need to know every time the chaplain came and visited them or the social worker came and visited them. So you have to use your judgment. And it's something that I've gotten better at the more of these cases I've done. When I first started, I was so paranoid that I'm going to I'm going to not send every single page and and there's going to be something so incredibly important on one of these pages and I'm going to screw this up. So I should just send everything as opposed to now I've worked on enough of these cases. I figured out, okay, page 800 to 15,500. None of this is relevant to anything in this case. I can cut that out reduce the amount of records that I am sending off to my expert and keep the price down, but also make sure I am not overwhelming them. And oftentimes what I will do, this is just what I can do, but I'll go to someone who has more experience than me and just ask them to confirm. You know, I'll sort of send an index of what records I want to send, what records I am leaving out, and I will send it to Amy, or I might send it to to Erica and say, hey, do you agree with what I am sending out? And then just have someone double check my work to make sure. I think there are two ways to accomplish what you're suggesting, which I think is the right way. The first one is to go ahead and cull those records to the relevant quote unquote number and send those to the expert with an explanation that this is not the complete set because you don't want to look like you're hiding things or purposefully not sending records to mold the opinion. So the letter or the correspondent should say, I'm enclosing these records. Please know that there are an additional 15,000 pages of flow sheets, which I'm happy to provide to you if you believe that they will assist in your opinion. The other way to do it is to cull the records and have that set labeled as such, not cherry picked or culled, but select or whatever the most benign way to say that is, but then also maybe include a share file or a thumb drive with everything on it if that expert so chooses. But Liz, your point about cost is well taken, my friend. You have to have that phone conversation with the expert, particularly if there's someone that you haven't used before, and give them some guidance on what to review and how long to review it, right? Because if, and it's not just because that person just can't wait to bill $500 an hour to a lawyer, for God's sakes. I think a lot of times it's this person is sent several thousand pages of records and they think it's their duty to be the best expert they can be to review every piece of it. So there needs to be a conversation, some guidance about here's what I'm sending. Here's why I'm sending it. Here's what I think is going to be the most relevant. You can decide, but please let me know if you go over four or five hours of review, please let me know. I know I hate having that conversation about, how much they can spend and how many hours is appropriate because I don't want to feel like I'm being heavy handed about anything regarding their opinion, how they reach it, how much time they take to reach it. It's worse than to get a $20,000 bill and have to explain that to your client or to whoever's signing the check, (laughs) whoever that may be. 
<laughs> so it just goes into this conversation that I think you have to have with the expert, particularly if there's someone that you haven't used before. I do the same. I do kind of a hybrid. I send them the file, but have a conversation with them prior. One thing that I I think is the biggest takeaway from that is make sure your expert has everything they need to give their opinions and you're not leaving anything out that would change their opinions or alter their opinions or that they would need to review to form additional opinions. Because in the deposition, that's really the question. You're just thinking ahead to their deposition when you're doing all of this background work. I had a case, I think two years ago, where it was voluminous records of a minor client and the defense and good job on them found, you know, the one page in the 25,000 pages where it said grandma's cousin twice removed had this rare disorder. And in the deposition, our expert who's giving causation opinions is asked, well, didn't you know that grandma's cousin came into the room and they said they had a history of so-and-so and our expert was like, fantastic job on finding it has nothing, no basis into my opinion, doesn't change any of my opinions, but I have no doubt that there's one line in in that 25,000 page stack and then it's covered and they're not going to get hassled about it. Everyone who's been practicing and who's in the room when those questions are being asked is not expecting any expert on either side to have looked at and studied 20,000 pages of records. I have yet to work on a case where all 20,000 pages are if you're taking a case where you have to present 20,000 pages of medical records as a plaintiff's attorney, you're probably going to lose. So, you know, it's good to pare it down if you can. Once you have your expert, have had the initial conversation and have pulled out the records for review, do you include anything else other than the medical records, Liz? Depending on the expert, if there is maybe a report of some kind, if, it, if it, let's say it's a motor vehicle accident and there is a police report, might include that. If it's a case where some of the parties have already been deposed, in particular the plaintiff who can talk about his or her injuries or what he or she recalls from the, the date of the incident, I may include that later. As you mentioned, oftentimes we are reaching out to these experts before litigation has even been filed, so there's no depositions yet. But later, I may supplement with deposition testimony that's been taken by my client. If there's a defendant doctor, I may send that along as well so they can get an idea of what the defendant doctor is saying, and, and that might fill in some of the medical records for them. The only other thing I'd add, Liz, is I've worked on cases before, and I know you have as well, where there might be an issue with a hospital system not having an adequate policy or procedure on any given topic. And so I've worked with experts before who are not only giving medical opinions, or they might just be retained on the case, on our case, specifically to talk about a hospital's policy or a standard that the hospital should be complying with that they failed to comply with. And in those instances, I have sent them and talk about leaving a ton of stuff out. And in those cases, I've sent them very narrowly the policies that we've gotten in production from the defendant and just sent those to the expert because everyone knows they're only there to talk about that narrow issue. I think sort of looking at the opposite side of that coin, sometimes the policy and procedure is written fine. And the expert can use that policy or procedure to say, look, yeah, they've got it written, which is great. 
So let me explain to you all the ways your employee failed to follow what is written. So they recognize what the danger is and, and why these regulations and rules are necessary. And this is how they broke those rules, X, Y, Z. So sometimes that can be a very useful tool as well. I'm glad you brought that up, Mary. We have a case right now. It's kind of interesting. It's not a medical malpractice case. It's whether the distributors and sellers of a product were negligent in doing so. And the experts are about essentially marketing and business ethics. And so in that case, there's not really any medical records they're looking at. It's a lot of their independent research and a lot of the sales records in the case and some of the other document production. But other than that, it's almost that we don't have much to give them besides depositions and some of the relevant document production. And sometimes that's the case. And you rely on the expert to find outside sources, literature, research, statutes, regulations, those types of things. In literature, I prefer for the expert to find the literature and send it to me. Now, I might do my own literature search and we might talk about it, but I usually don't send it unless it's so directly on point and I say, you know, this is what we talked about. I love it when the other side sends literature to their expert because, again, you're telling them the way you want them to believe or to think or to conclude. And I can always use that. So I would like to do a takeaway from today's episode on onboarding experts for initial reviews. Who wants to start? My takeaway is that there are a lot more uses for experts than you may think, even if it's just consulting them and you don't end up using them to never forget to add that to your checklist and and going through your case and your strategy is to always think about whether an expert would be helpful in any stage of litigation. Great. Mary? My biggest takeaway is that you've got to be selective when you're choosing an expert because their role in your case is so significant and the cost that you're pouring into using that expert, you have to make sure that it's worth it. So you really need to be selective when choosing an expert. Liz? My takeaway is that you need to be incredibly careful what you're putting into writing when you are speaking with your expert. And Mary, I'm referring to your story about the novel that apparently opposing counsel sent to their expert. And it also makes me think of one time I had an expert who I did not realize was as green as he was. And he sent me a very lengthy email that I immediately called him and said, you know, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with me. Never do that again. Just pick up the phone and call me. So that is the the takeaway and just sort of the additional point I wanted to plug in this is make sure you have that discussion with your experts early on. If I'm not going to put a lot in writing, I hope that you do the same. My takeaway, we didn't address it really in the body of this discussion, but it is the lawyer making the decision about whether to name and disclose an expert has to have conversations with that expert And you have to picture that expert testifying in front of the jury. Will the jury believe, like, side with that expert? And trust your gut 
if you don't love this expert, if you think this expert is not really explaining his or her opinion, maybe has some ego issues, if you feel that, you know the jury will. So always picture this expert testifying in front of the jury. And if you are satisfied with what they're saying and how they're saying it, you're good to go. If you have any doubts whatsoever, think twice about whether to use that expert. So thank you everyone for joining us for today's episode of Heels in the Courtroom. Remember that we are in our season three now and we will drop episodes every Wednesday. Please send us any comments, any topic suggestions to heelsinthecourtroom.law and we'll see you soon. Subscribe to Heels in the Courtroom now and check out the other legal podcasts in the Simon Law Firm Library. Dive into the legal drama behind America's first medical malpractice case against opioid overprescription in Results Don't Lie. Check it out.